Good afternoon. It's Simon Rofe here, and with this, you're joining us for another of the global sport conversations in our series at CISD at SOAS. Today we're joined by author Simon Cooper. Simon, good afternoon. I was wondering if you could share a few thoughts on your work on um, you know, writing on sport and sport and diplomacy. Well, I'm a financial times journalist and normally I write a column not about sport, um, a general column largely nowadays about Brexit and Trump and other outrages. But I've always written about football as well and during the World Cup I'll be very intensively going around Russia writing about that and from now on we're talking late April, uh, football is very much kind of on my agenda and stopping me from doing most other things. So Simon, when we first started um, corresponding on this, to what extent did you question or um, think about sport and diplomacy? What do you understand sport and diplomacy to be? I've always been aware of the topic. I see it as a way for a country, A, to burnish its image to a broad public and B, to reach particular foreign dignitaries or foreign leaders that it's hoping to impress, for example, by inviting them over or foreign business people. Okay. And in terms of those uh, dignitaries or leadership, um, what is it about sport that facilitates that conversation in your mind? It's a more relaxing setting. So if you say to someone, do you want to come over and talk uh, about business with the leader of our country or with our government? People are more on their guard. Um, they'll be prepared. They'll come with a briefing team. If you say, we'd love to invite you over to what, say, you know, England, Panama in our country, then uh, people are at ease. Uh, you invite them. You have a nice meal before the game. You have a couple of drinks. You watch the game. After the game, you're chatting. And you say, oh, by the way, of course, a lot of business has always been done like this. It helps very much if you're the host government of a country that's hosting the World Cup. You might bring in an ex-player. You've invited him. You're paying him, who's a star everyone loves to meet. You know, and so the CEO or the government figure can go home and tell his kids that he met X. Mm. So all these things uh, create a relaxed mood. This is where you're trying to impress particular high-powered figures. Okay, and to those um, high-powered figures, is there something about sport beyond its um, facility, along the location, beyond the site of diplomacy? Is there something about sport that perhaps contrasts with inviting those dignitaries to a musical concert or an art exhibition? Is there something about sport's other capacities, other characteristics that allows that um, dialogue to be more meaningful in your mind? I mean, probably all art aims to arouse emotions, but as we know, football especially World Cups, is very, very good at doing so. So you're sitting there, you're emoting with people, you're going through the highs and lows, and when you share emotions with people, you bond with them. So you meet somebody at 4 o'clock, and by 8 o'clock, you feel you've been through a lot together. And um, I think that for most people, if they go to a classical music concert with somebody, they won't have quite that depth of emotional experience. Okay, thanks. If we're just taking the direction a little broader, looking at the other stakeholders in the conversation, because if you're hosting a you know an international football match or an international football tournament, it's not only the dignitaries and the fans that are there, but there are other important stakeholders such as media representation, multinational corporations, big sponsors. To what extent are they part of that um, relaxing atmosphere or indeed part of a, um, the dynamic that you see at work here? 
they're very important. I mean, in terms of business, I know that France, when they were hosting Euro 2016, I talked to the then French ambassador for sport, and he said all the big CEOs of big global companies, or loads of them, are going to be in France. We'll never have so many CEOs in France at the same moment as during Euro 2016. Of course, we can offer these people loads of stuff because we have access to all the stadiums, we have the banqueting halls, etc. So it's an amazing business opportunity. If you want to have a chat with the CEO of you know, a very large company and you have him there in Paris or in Marseille for the match, that, that's a really good opportunity uh, if you can show him a good time as well. I say him, but usually, of course, that is it is him. And as for journalists, I mean, if you think of Russia, you know, Russia's always strongly curtailed foreign journalists. Uh, often, you know, not that many foreign journalists are posted there. You know, most newspapers only have one correspondent there, if that. Mm. And then for the World Cup, there'll be several thousand foreign journalists, including, I hope, me, going around Russia. It's probably the largest number of foreign journalists ever to work in Russia for a five-week period. So uh, for Russia, it's both a threat, you know, what are these journalists going to write, and an opportunity. That's very interesting in thinking about the way that the media can help shape the environment as well as be shaped by it. Is there something, um, particularly with the case of of Russia, um, about promoting the message of sport broadly, but football particularly, that the journalists can feed back to? So the audience at home, as it were, be that in the UK or elsewhere where teams are competing? I think that Russia would be very happy if they only write about the football. So uh, I'm in the stadium and it was an amazing match. Um, they would love that. What And also, you know, I, I'm in Rostov and the Russians have been very friendly to me. I'm in a bar and I met really nice Russians and how well it's organized, how the trains run on time. I think what they're more worried about is that you'll have all these journalists poking around in cities where normally there are no journalists because there's about 10 cities that are hosting. Very rarely do you get foreign journalists in Russia outside Moscow. So I think what they don't want is people saying, um, you know, I'm in Kaliningrad and people are quite uh, hostile and the place looks poor and depressed, etc. So uh, I think the Russians want this to be a kind of carnival of football reporting. They don't want it to be anything else. Do we have a sort of precedence that actually it is the football that dominates? If you look perhaps back to the World Cup in Brazil, despite the events the year before and the Federations Cup, which was you know highly um, problematic for the national government with lots of protests and that impacting upon the football that was played then, come the World Cup itself, actually you know foreign journalists and indeed domestic journalists to a degree did focus in on the efforts of their respective teams and it is the you know sport actually provides something of a, a blind spot to those other. Um, issues during the course of a tournament and come the end of the tournament every you know the journalists and the other football teams have gone home and you sort of uh, revert back to type is that perhaps the 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 sort of transitory nature of sport it's very true that during the tournament from the moment the first game kicks off say 95% of reporting is about the football you know the goals the red cards Suarez biting someone but you have years and years, you know, Russia was awarded the World Cup in 2010. So you have seven and a half years of admittedly less intensive, but much longer period of coverage 
which is about you know North Korean slaves helping to build the St. Petersburg Stadium, the St. Petersburg Stadium going many times over budget, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a very wide scope to write about non-footballing matters before. I think it is going to be different this time because Brazil is never a news topic that foreign journalists have covered, whether there's a World Cup or not. There's very mm-hmm. little interest in the government of Brazil, corruption in Brazil, etc., Russia is now in the center of world media attention because of the sort of new Cold War. So I think many journalists will be eager to write about that as well. Okay. In that sense, what are the, you know, perhaps moving on from Russia, the, the next um, global football event is obviously going to be in Qatar. And that was also awarded back in 2010 with equally sort of problematic uh, narrative. At least one school of thought suggests that you know, Russia has to some extent got away from the focus of the world's media by the fact that Qatar has taken a degree of the, that attention. Is there something here about the, the ongoing cycle of sport, the temporal nature of it, the fact that there's always another fixture mm-hmm. that allows us to you know, perhaps um, you know, drink the opiate of the masses as, as sport is uh, sometimes described? I wouldn't say that sports is just covered as opiates of the masses anymore because there has been a lot of coverage, as you say, about you know Qatar's kafala system, the um, uh, the way they treat foreign labor. There's been a lot of coverage about um, Putin as a uh, an autocratic figure and how this will play out in the World Cup. I do think it's transitory. So when a World Cup is over, it's finished. It's history. It's it's barely mentioned ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, journalism always goes on to the next thing. And it's true that Qatar has had more coverage than Russia uh, for seven years as a host. But actually, that is now briefly suspended. Now Russia is the story. And thinking back to some other historical examples, I know you work on you know, Dutch football and other points of conflict using football um, in your, your book, Football Against the Enemy. Is there something about the you know the passions and the emotions of football that you could you know, perhaps... Um, summarize as being you know its contribution to the ongoing dialogue the one that you spoke about at the outset of you know providing a a sort of safe space for for conversation i mean governments would like football to be an apolitical subject so we just talk about how much fun it was it was a party and there's a lot of that but football is very often also a political subject so football is discussed by everyone in different ways and the general public is aware of the political importance of football. So, I mean, for me, the best World Cup example is Argentina 1978, where the military dictatorship thought, we'll host a carnival of football, people will like us, they'll have a good time. They'll come here, they'll drink the wine in Mendoza, they'll, you know, dance tapas in Buenos Aires, it'd be great. Sorry, dance tango in Buenos Aires, it'd be great. And in fact, journalists spent a very long time covering the disappearance of political prisoners much to the outrage of the junta. So it's very hard for a dictatorship to host a tame World Cup. Um, human rights organizations know that the only time they can get attention to their issues, so in Qatar it's the abuse of foreign labor, nobody cares about the abuse, very few people in the world care about the abuse of foreign labor in the Gulf, which has been ongoing for many years. Still nobody cares about that in other Gulf countries. But the abuse of foreign labor in Qatar has become an issue since they got to host the World Cup. The disappearance of political prisoners in Argentina in the 70s was not on the world's news agenda until they decided to host a World Cup. So a World Cup attracts attention to these issues much more now. I mean, the contrast with Berlin in the 1936 Olympics, when I think the world media was 
much more naive about the political football, political sports connection. Now there are loads of people who will jump on that. Is there something there then about, you could say, about the legacy of um, sporting mega events such as a World Cup that really gives, uh, you know, sort of, without speculating, the opportunity for, you know, the lessons to be learned or at least identified in terms of uh, international sporting federations awarding events? You know, much criticism of, of Set Blatter for many things, but there's at least a sort of subtext here that by exposing a country to an international sporting mega event there is a you know, liberating light to be shone even if it is transitory yeah i don't think that was fifa's intention though i think i mean blatter didn't want the world cup to be given to the qatar but i think the um 22 men on the fifa executive committee who voted for qatar and russia were largely persuaded by often uh, financial considerations <laughs> so it's not that they thought great this will shine a light on the human rights abuses in these countries in fact, to the contrary, um, they um, were perfectly happy with working with dictatorships. And as Jerome Falk, the Secretary General of FIFA, until he was uh, fired for corruption, said, it's easier working with a dictatorship because with the democracy, you have all these people who come in and say, no, we don't want that. Okay. Well, I think we're drawing to an end there. So thank you very much, Simon, for your contribution. Uh, look forward to hearing from you during the course of the World Cup. Thank you. Thanks very much.